Hello everyone and uh, welcome to the healthcare industry podcast by Camomile Healthcare. Hi everyone, uh, uh, good day to you. Um, you're on uh, the Camomile Healthcare uh, leadership uh, podcast and uh, I'm Raghav Rao, the CEO of Camomile Healthcare. And today we have a very interesting speaker, a very interesting uh, guest um, all the way from Nigeria, Mrs. Pola Loye. Uh, Pola, uh, Mrs. Pola, I think, uh, uh, needs no introduction to most of us. I think uh, she is one of the uh, foremost uh, healthcare leaders in the West African uh, region. Uh, she is credited with many firsts that she has done for the country, uh, you know, which include uh, creating the first JCI accredited hospital for Nigeria, you know, um, and uh, also uh, you know leading the investment from I International Finance Corporation with the private uh, private sector arm of the World Bank uh, to invest into her hospital. Um, she's been at the forefront of the Nigerian healthcare industry. She's um, an MBA from Harvard University and also in uh, a cost uh, child accountant. Um, so pleasure to have you here, Pola, and thank you for um, you know being on this podcast. Okay, sure. Thank you for having me, Raghav. Um, very good to be here. And hello to everyone from Lagos, Nigeria. Mm. Thank you. Um, you know, you've been at the forefront of um, you know. Uh, driving the change in the healthcare industry in Nigeria. Uh, you've been the CEO of uh, the, a premier healthcare institution in Nigeria, uh, uh, which you have led to becoming a JCI accredited hospital, which I think by no means is a small feat. And uh, it, it didn't stop there. You went on to get our international finance cooperation to fund the hospital for its growth plans. You know, what did this journey look like? You know, and uh, What's what's your advice for other entrepreneurs on uh, how to tread this path and how easy or difficult is it? Has have things changed? I think really, uh, you know, would like to hear from you, Pola. Sure. I mean, I guess to answer that, I'll, I'll tell a little bit of our story, you know, and maybe then use that to sort of show how things have evolved over time. Um, so, um, you know, in, at the time when we we're getting going and, and really beginning to look for outside financing. Um, you know, luckily, and maybe not just luck, but also, I guess, uh, through deliberate activity, the for format of the hospital was actually that of a corporate hospital. So this was a hospital that was started as a family business by my family, my parents, who were both physicians, uh, surgeon and physician couple. But they had the foresight of thinking ahead and creating a corporate entity and, you know, bringing in external investors from day one, you know, even though they were local investors, uh, both uh, friends and family, as well as some corporates. So there were a few insurance companies, some local investors were already in the business. And what that meant is that it meant that first and foremost, it was run as a business from day one. And particularly it was run with a certain level of governance. There was a board of directors, there were you know, audited financial statements every year, you know, there were accountants, not just the doctors you know, in the system. And all of this I say, because at that time, this was extremely important to be able to talk to a financier, whether a local bank or to even talk to anybody like an international DFI, you know, that was first the first question. What's the level of governance in the business? You know, what's the level of uh, organization? What's the level of, um, you know, of, of what's the setup like? And I think that still is the key question even today. 
you know, for most investors, they want to know is the business, what we might call, or the hospital, what we might call investment ready. So I think investment readiness, you know, was very important. But I think maybe in addition to this, um, what I can say is at that time, the landscape was quite different from now. It was very difficult to raise capital. Right. I mean, loans and bank debt, for instance, at that time were uh, interest rates of 30, 33% and tenors of two years, you know, two and a half, if you were lucky. So you were literally paying the bank with every, every penny that you earned from your patients or our patients, we were using to sort of first and foremost pay off uh, bank loans and then pay salaries and suppliers and so on. So it was a very costly way of trying to grow. Um, equity was also tough, uh, even though, as I mentioned, yes, there was, shall I say, friends and family equity, what you might call pre-seed <laughs> these days. Um, but there was no real venture capital. You know, it was either you really went to um, um, friends and family or a few corporates. Whereas now the landscape has really changed. And I have to say that I have to really give IFC themselves uh, kudos because they were the earliest of the development finance institutions to come into Africa and really want to do something about, you know, in, you know, investing in healthcare. We were one of their first investments. This was in the late 90s. Um, it was a small amount, but it was still a very symbolic amount because it was the beginning, really, for them and for other DFIs who then have clubbed together since then to come in. And the DFIs coming in, they, they played that role of really being the, you know, the first one to lay the land and build a landscape, which has allowed private equity and venture capital to come into healthcare in Africa since then. So it's been a great journey. Wonderful. I think um, uh, that's an, uh, certainly a very interesting uh, a journey. Uh, moving on, I think we would also like to understand from you on uh, you know, how did you bring in the quality culture into the Nigerian healthcare market? You, know, you have been able to obtain Joint, joint Commission International accreditation for uh, your hospital. And I think uh, uh, you're the first hospital in the country to have got it. Uh, I think that must have been an amazing journey, uh, you know, to uh, go the quality way. And uh, given the uh, uh, challenges that the country was facing in terms of um, uh, uh, making the ends meet, making uh, uh, making sure that the human resources are there to the systems and others. I think um, can you tell us on uh, you know how was the journey and uh, you know what what's your advice to other entrepreneurs uh, who want to go the go the JCI way? Sure, I think first of all you know to put it again in context that in you know, quality and and bringing an accreditation, shall I say badge you know to our markets and to our hospitals was, was really important and is still important, really because there is a trust deficit, you know, between uh, the population, particularly those who can afford private care, you know, and, and, the, and the providers. And that's really just been built over the decades of the fact that care has not been as very strongly regulated. Um, and therefore, there's been to a large extent care that has not met, you know, um, minimum standards. Uh, and so we realized that, you know, to do this, we needed to, or to, to sort of change the narrative here, we needed to really hold ourselves up to a higher standard. 
And that was really what, you know, going and getting, uh, obtaining JCI was all about, was how do we hold ourselves up to a higher standard than perhaps even the market was holding providers like us at that time. And more importantly, in, in, in that vein of holding ourselves to a higher standard, as you mentioned, Raghav, was building a, a culture of quality for our staff. So that that way, everyone who worked with us and everybody was, who was on the train with us realized the need to really, again, jointly, you know, have that culture that was at a higher level. And we, we right. therefore, you know, for us, JCI therefore became a bit of an oasis, you know, of sanity, because again, you know, the, we were the only ones, so we still are, although um, thankfully, there have been other accreditation bodies that are now being used in the market, including a local one called the Society for Quality in Healthcare, as well as government. Government also has started to pick up the baton in terms of strengthening their own surveillance as well. So again, uh, we hope that, you know, starting with that JCI intervention has, you know, created quite a bit of um, improvement. Wonderful. You know, how do you compare yourself in terms of quality of care, uh, accessibility, and uh, you know, accessibility and availability of super specialty services? Because though, if I am, uh, if I, um, I, you know, if I am right, I think uh, those were some of the challenges that the country was facing in terms of uh, what services are available locally, and sure. uh, you know, uh, how how much of the population is able to access them. Uh, mm -hmm. So, how does it look like now, and uh, what is it the country is doing to you know? Uh, improve the situation? Yeah, I mean, certainly, <clears throat> I think over the last 20 years or so, I mean, we've seen significant population growth. You know, we are now just over 200 million people. And within that context of the growth of the population, we've also seen very much what you call the double burden of disease, um, both communicable diseases, which was probably what we were grappling with mostly 20, 25 years ago, we were dealing with malaria, tuberculosis, and what had then been introduced had been HIV AIDS. And that was where a lot of work was being done. Now we're dealing with the more lifestyle diseases, the non-communicable diseases, are, uh, you know, most notable is cancer. You know, this, the level, uh, the incidence of cancer is very much on the rise here, in addition to, you know, um, uh, heart disease, you know, and, and the other, like I said, more lifestyle and, you know, and, you know, of the endocrine of uh, uh, diabetes and so on. So now we have a system that needs to cope A, with a bigger population and, of course, with more complex diseases, which are calling for more complex care. Now, how has the system, you know, and how has the environment been able to react to that? Um, at first, very slowly. Um, and that was one of the reasons, even though we saw not just the growth of the population, we also saw um, a growth in the economy. So I think, you know, I would say the last 20 years, I would probably divide into two. The first 10 years where there was quite, you know, significant growth in the economy, which aided, you know, obviously it meant that the per capita spend of, of, in healthcare was growing. We also at that time saw health insurance, you know, start, and that created also now a better sort of demand side financing. So a fair amount of growth all round. And that certainly helped 
you know, providers to grow, you know, was able to access, as I said, more finance from development finance and, and other means, and therefore expand and put in more services, uh, you know, bring in higher end diagnostics, uh, higher end uh, treatment facilities, you know, and some sort of more specialist care. And all of that has, you know, I've been very good for the market. Now, the last 10 years, though, has been more difficult because, again, the need for the acute care has really grown. But unfortunately, the economy of the country, you know, has taken a nosedive. We've had a lot of uh, issues economically. The price of oil went down, you know, and so on. And that therefore meant that there was a mismatch, again, between what people could really spend versus the need. And, and to some extent, though, we know that we always have that top one to 5% of the population who have the means and, you know, basically voted with their feet. So we saw medical tourism grow very significantly amongst that uh, sort of cadre of our population. But for the rest, um, of course, who are not as able to access, uh, you know, being able to travel and so on, it then meant, you know, trying very hard to piece together the care that they required, you know, here at home. Um, there was a huge, uh, we know that the Nigerian doctors and uh, nurses are very well qualified and very well trained and, uh, you know, uh, but most of them were moving to the UK or South Africa. Uh, so what's the trend like today, you know, and also I, we, we, uh, I, I remember that a significant um, number of the doctors are coming back to the country when uh, they're seeing better healthcare facilities uh, uh, being made available. So is the trend stronger now? However, in the last few years, and particularly now, since the world has reopened post-COVID, we are beginning to see another significant brain drain. And this is now due to the global shortage of, you know, right. of human resources, um, both in, in healthcare and in other sectors even. And that's very sharp at the moment because it's really, really pulling, uh, you know, the people in the south um, up to the north and to the west. And, and that is really a, a key challenge that we are all facing now because, you know, as I said, and because of the global mobility and obviously with being able to do more work remotely and virtually and so on. So, the you know, the opportunities to work from here, there, you know, have increased significantly. And so this is the one thing that whilst we may have solved to some extent our infrastructure or, or shall I say our capital and investment challenge, you know, we still face, you know, very much the human resource challenge. And it's an area that we are all focused on extremely at the moment. I know we all need to recognize that healthcare is going to be local. And therefore, I think uh, if the institutions, strong institutions are built, I think uh, 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 talent will probably follow. You know, I think, uh, yes, I think uh, so we'll need, and that's exactly uh, what's happened in India. Um, mm -hmm. uh, because of the size of the market and um, the facilities that India has created, I think um, there's very, very little uh, scope for someone to look beyond the country, you know, mm -hmm. even in terms of yearning. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, uh, uh, that's what probably uh, I think Nigeria also will see uh, very soon. Yes, I mean that's that's the hope. I mean, of course, as you rightly said, you know, the fact that earnings can be made in country is extremely important. At the moment, because of the economic situation in Nigeria, the earnings don't quite meet up with the quality of life required. 
and that's a key challenge. So there's a key macro challenge as well, which we do, you know, we do hope, you know, have, you know tends to be cyclical and we're hoping that we will ride out that cycle and that will make things more attractive for sure. Right. And in terms of the cost of care, uh, even that's one of the big, uh, big hurdles uh, in countries like Nigeria. Um, so how does it compare with, uh, let's say, in UK or uh, India or uh, the Middle East? You know? so, um, yeah, yeah. I, I would say the cost of care is probably closer to India than it is to the UK or, or the Middle East. Um, had, but, you know, largely maybe because we had an advantage or we used to have an advantage on the, on the human resources cost side. But now we are competing for talent, even with the UK. So we're having to sort of write that. So that will bring costs up for sure. The other thing too that brings our costs up is the fact that we haven't gotten the manufacturing capability that India and other parts of Southeast Asia have. So we're not manufacturing enough of our own drugs and consumables and, you know, inf and even equipment. There's been a lot of focus on trying to, again, build up the manufacturing capacity, particularly for drugs and consumables in country. And there's been quite a bit of in intervention investments put in that regard. So we also hope that that will, will yield fruit. I think that's very interesting. Um, you know, uh, I always thought that the you know, uh, costs in Nigeria are probably much higher than India. Uh, to just put things, um, uh, to compare it, I think how much would an MRI uh, uh, procedure cost in Nigeria? Um, now in dollar terms, I think you probably be able to get an MRI for probably about 70, 70, $75, I would imagine. Wow, that's very competitive. I think a lot has changed then. I think it used to be certainly much higher earlier. Yes, uh, so there, uh, a lot has changed. There are a lot more, there's more supply. And as oh, you can okay. imagine, once there's more supply, that has helped very much. Uh, and there's, you know, there's more demand. And, you know, there's, that's the one thing that, you know, it, it's always, which is it, the chicken or the egg? Do you create right. more demand right. before you create more supply? but the two feed off each other. So the more you create supply, the more that creates demand as well, because people know that they can get the services and close to them, you know, their homes and so on. And that certainly helps. So yes, because there's been more supply that has certainly helped with bringing prices down to a more affordable level. Oh, that's excellent. I think uh, uh, that suddenly, I think, uh, you know, a huge uh, change from uh, what I know of the Nigerian market. I think the tariffs and the cost of care is to be between three and five times India. And therefore, a strong reason for them to look at India mm -hmm. uh, for uh, care. And of course, they were also going to UK. Uh, but what's the situation now? We, you know, Nigerians are still the bulk of uh, medical value travelers to India. You know? um, and... Um, uh, you know, we also, I think a lot of Indian hospitals have set up shop in Nigeria to attract this segment. You know, whoever wants to, whoever is uh, having to travel out of Nigeria for care. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and then the COVID is stuck and there was absolutely no travel, you know. So, you know, uh, uh, so what happened when there was no travel? So what happened to the patients who required advanced care? And, uh, you know, and what's going to happen now, you know, now that the restrictions are getting lifted and the travel is again uh, resuming, uh, would 
patients, uh, you know, get back to the pre-COVID um, um, behavior of moving out of the country or have the facilities really up their, um, you know, infrastructure and uh, systems to actually take care of them uh, locally? I think it's a bit of both. I'm certainly, perhaps it's good that just pre-COVID, there were certain investments that were made. And in a way, it's been good because the system here, yes, I wouldn't say that there's enough supply yet, and therefore there are backlogs, you know, uh, surgeries and so on waiting to be done. Um, but just the fact that there is certainly more services available, you know, now um, is certainly helping. But as I said, it's a mixed bag because as, as the world reopens, yes, people will start traveling again. People already have started traveling again. And some people travel anyway to say, I, I don't think that, that the door will totally close, you know, but having said that there's much more available in country uh, and, and therefore I think that that will also be a benefit that uh, the local community will see. Wonderful. I think uh, there was a huge drop in a lot of uh, cardiac cases, oncology right. cases. So everyone yeah. is wondering, you know, what happened to those patients? You know, why did uh, the disease suddenly disappear? But I think the reasons were something else than, uh, you know, the, the disease disappearing, uh, actually. What is it uh, looking like now in terms of cost per bed for a tertiary, multi-speciality tertiary care hospital? Oh, wow. <laughs> You've got me there. <laughs> okay. Not sure that I can easily give you that number off the top of my head. I must confess there are two things that we need to think about. Uh, one is, you know, obviously where there are opportunities for brownfield, because then that helps us to sort of de-risk and also in a way, uh, you know, reduce the cost per bed. Um, so that's one thing that I think a lot of investors are working with. And um, the other also is that we also realize that we've got to work with, uh, the market is working with the globally competitive benchmarks for emerging markets. Right. So we looked very much to the rates in India, for instance, uh, to some extent in South Africa, which may even be a bit higher. And right. that's where we, we tend to target when we're thinking about investments in healthcare. Right. Um, so, but is there a lot of interest in uh, setting up hospitals post the COVID um, uh, pandemic? Very much so. Right. There's a lot of interest. Um, there's been two major hospitals already opened in, in Lagos. I think it's all of the above. So existing hospitals are expanding. Um, some of them have placed themselves on the market for acquisition. So that has allowed new investors to come in uh, and play in the sector. Uh, private equity money is still around and there's now much cheaper um, you know, um, fixed income, cheaper debt as well. So really and truly it's much more of a mixed bag, much broader. I'd probably say maybe the key difference was before a lot of the promoters of the projects were doctors or medical personnel themselves. Nowadays, that's not the case. There are business people now at the table, people who've worked in other sectors and who realize that you know, they can also come into the healthcare sector as they did elsewhere and promote projects. So that perhaps is the bigger you know, evolution that we're seeing now. Uh, moving on now, uh, you know, I think I would like to um, uh, ask you on what's, uh, you know, what keeps you going? So you come from, um, you know, a background of an MBA from Harvard and uh, a chartered accountancy. 
but i think, I think uh, you you took on your passion uh, you know to be in healthcare so and you remain to be in healthcare over the last two decades you know so what kept you on uh, what kept you glued to the healthcare sector and mm -hmm. what uh, a piece of advice that you would like to give uh, for uh, mm -hmm. you know, other entrepreneurs out there sure that's a good question um <laughs> well i i guess it's it's been some level of yeah i guess you know doggedness or resilience you know just keeping the faith being you know really believing that you know um you know my work and the work of you know folks like myself has and is and will continue to create impact in a sector that so is so badly needed in the country. I think that's what got me going in the first place. And that's still what gets keeps me going now. There's so much really that keeps me on my toes, keeps me thinking, you know, and keeps me um, feeling the need to keep, you know, keep refreshing and keep going. And, and I think particularly, yes, the fact that capital has continued to be an issue and therefore being able to continue to raise capital and different forms of it and bring it you know, as a key enabler to the sector has also been something that has kept me you know, particularly uh, focused on this. That's wonderful. And also, I think uh, you're taking forward your father's legacy of, uh, you know, he was one of the pioneers of the Nigerian um, healthcare industry and um, the uh, uh, chancellor of the largest university um, in the country. Um, yeah, I think uh, this has been a great discussion and a lot of takeaways, uh, Fola. Uh, thank you so much for being with us and uh, giving this very, very insightful uh, uh, information about the Nigerian healthcare market and uh, uh, the patient behavior and what's in store uh, for the country um, in, in its, evolu in its uh, healthcare evolution. Um, thank you so much. Thanks, Raghav, and, and thank you so much also for the work you've done over the years and are still doing. So look forward to hearing more from you. Thanks.